Praise God. Let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. These are the verses that I've used every night, and then we've gone to other verses in Hebrews in different places to just amplify on this. But Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. Boy, there are some powerful things in there. And we've, this is now our fifth time to be just talking about this. And I've said some things that are so contrary to our religious culture today, and yet it is foundational to Scripture. Hebrews and the book of Romans are kind of the uh, bedrock of the New Testament. They are the basic revelation. We don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but I believe it was Paul. It says over in the 13th chapter that our, you know, Silas has said it, or Timothy has set at liberty, and, and uh, it's definitely somebody who is of Paul's time and of his stature, and this is consistent with his writing. But Romans was written by Paul, and it, these provide the foundation of our faith. If Romans and Hebrews aren't your two favorite books, are certainly in the top ten in the Bible, then you don't have a real good revelation of the gospel. This is just foundational. And we've been saying some things that are really strong. And I, I want to just, again, thank you all for the way that you've received this. Because there's lots of times I try and say these things and I can't say it because the people are so upset. They aren't receiving it and you have to stop and spend so much time explaining things and, and going into explanation that you can't go very far. You guys have been like a sponge. You've just been soaking up everything... I've got to say, so that's really, really good. And again, that's an indication to me that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in people's lives. There is a real receptiveness to the, to the Word of God. So we've covered a lot of powerful things. If this is your first service, I really encourage you to get the teaching from the entire thing because uh, I've covered the bulk of, of the things that I'm going to say. Tonight, what I need to do is kind of tie up the loose ends, answer some questions. I've had a, dozens of people ask me these questions and I said, I'm going to try and deal with them. So I need to answer these questions tonight. Real quickly, let me just make some of the major points. I've talked about uh, the difference between the old covenant law and the new covenant grace, that the old covenant is not something that we mix with the new covenant. They aren't the same thing. They aren't compatible. They are incompatible. And you have to get away from the Old Testament law way of approaching God. It says right in these verses that we have a new and living way as opposed to the old and death way. The Old Testament law is called death. And I've got a lot of teaching on this. I've got a, a book that we advertise tonight on the true nature of God that would go into more explanation and give you a lot of specific scriptures on that. Another thing that I've made is that uh, the reason that God is pleased with us is because He's a spirit, John 4, 24, and He sees us in the spirit. And in the spirit, it, we are a totally brand new person. We were created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4, 24. We are a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 
And so that is true in your spirit, not in your physical body. And the moment you get born again, Ephesians 1.13 says you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So as a Christian, all of your sins have been forgiven. In the spirit, you're perfect. And if you sin as a Christian, that sin may give Satan an inroad into your physical body. It might give Satan an inroad into your mind and into your emotions, but it doesn't penetrate the seal around your spirit. Since God is a spirit, He's always seeing you in the spirit and you can approach right into the very throne room of God if you are in spirit and in truth. If you are basing your relationship on who you are in Christ, not who you are in your carnal self. Man, that is a wonderful truth. And I've got a book out there and a teaching entitled Spirit, Soul, and Body. It goes into a lot of explanation on that. That's the major teaching that God used to change my life. But I've had a number of questions along this line about, well, if that's true, if your spirit is sanctified and perfected forever, which is what we talked about this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14, and then Hebrews 12, 23 says it was your spirit that's been made perfect. If that's true, if your spirit is perfect, well, then what about scriptures like, for instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 7? Let me turn over and just answer this quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says in verse 1, Therefore, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And I've had a number of people come up and say, well, that scripture talks about cleansing ourselves of uh, the filthiness of our flesh and spirit. This is going to be a quick answer because I've got a lot of things I want to cover tonight. So this is a shortened version. I've got a, a teaching entitled Eternal Redemption. It's in my redemption series. It'll go into more detail and you can get that. But basically, this starts off saying, having therefore... These promises. When you see the word therefore, you got to look and see what it's there for. That means that this verse is dependent upon the previous promises that were made. So back up into the sixth chapter and look at what some of these promises are. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what concord or communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be uh, my people. Wherefore, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and you shall be sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, promises of uh, not communing and being stained by the unbelief and the corruption of unbelievers, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. It didn't say of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. This isn't talking about your spirit being defiled and, and contaminated. It's saying withdraw from other people, not only physically, 
But don't let their spirit, their attitude contaminate you. This isn't a scripture that is talking about your spirit being contaminated, but it's saying that you need to withdraw from people not only physically, but you need to get away from that. Uh, application of this today would be not only do you not go to the bars, but don't look at movies and things that portray all of the stuff that goes on in the bars. Don't even associate with it. Don't let that spirit, that attitude come into you. The word spirit in the uh, Bible, in the, the um, oh, who is that, that we always quote? Strong's, concordance. It, it can mean a number of different things, but it also means a mental disposition. When you say that, boy, they have great school spirit, or they got, you know, the Boston Red Sox. Man, what a spirit that their fans have. That's not talking about a spirit like the Holy Spirit or a demonic spirit are a part of your anatomy, the spirit, it's talking about a mental disposition, an attitude. And so that's the way that this is used. You not only need to separate yourself from the ungodly in actions, don't go there, but don't get that attitude. Don't have their mental disposition. Cleanse yourself of that mindset that they have. Everybody see that? This is not talking about your spirit being defiled because I've got a lot of scriptures. I only touched on a few of them, but there's a lot of scriptures that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, you are sanctified and perfected forever in your spirit. So your spirit cannot be defiled. It does not uh, get contaminated. It, you open up a door to the devil and when you sin, so quit sinning, but it doesn't affect your spirit man. Here's another question that goes along with this. Based on the things that I was teaching, that we are sanctified and perfected forever, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, that we have eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, that we have eternal inheritance. Some people say, so then it's impossible to lose your salvation. You must believe once saved, always saved. And I have people ask me questions about scriptures that talk about a person becoming reprobate or something like this. And this is a complicated issue, and I could spend an hour and a half talking about this. I'm going to give you the shortened version, okay? And if you want more information, you can go get that teaching on eternal redemption, and uh, it'll answer it in more detail. But here's what I believe about this, that you can't lose your salvation in the sense that you lose your car keys or lose your glasses. You can't remember where they were. It was, I didn't want to lose them. I just lost them. You can't lose your salvation because it's God has forgiven you and it's over and God has done it you can't lose it it's, it can't be done by mistake but the scripture says that you weren't forced to get saved you had to choose God and you can renounce your salvation you can't lose it you can't send it away but you can renounce your salvation you can turn away and just as Adam and Eve, they were eternally in relationship with God. Their spirit was in total relationship and they were created to never die. But they had a choice and they chose to turn away from that. And when they did, they died spiritually. And I believe that a born-again Christian can renounce their salvation, but it's not done through sin. Sin isn't what sends anybody to hell. Uh, like I was saying this morning, the Lord has already forgiven your sins, past, present, and future. And really, it's the only sin that the Lord is convicting people over is the sin of not believing on Him. John chapter 16, verse 8 and 9 through 11. So that's the only thing that's the issue is a person born again. And once you're born again, all of your sins are forgiven. 
And see, this is really contrary to most religious people today because they say, no way. You can't tell me that a person who just went out and committed adultery and was on their way driving home from committing adultery, if they have a car wreck and if they didn't have time to repent and get that thing confessed and under the blood and if they die, you can't tell me that a person that had just committed adultery and hadn't repented of it could go to heaven. It's quiet in this Presbyterian church. See, most people, I just can't see how God could could let something like that happen. Well, let me use this scripture. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. See, a person who believes that you lose your salvation because of sin, they will have to admit, you know, if you ask them, so are you saying that you're perfect that you never say, Oh, no, I sinned. You know, do you love your wife the way that Christ loves the church? That's what we were commanded to do. Do you reverence your husband the way that the church is supposed to reverence Christ? Everybody will have to say, well, no, I'm not perfect. I don't do everything right. I don't study as much as I should. I don't pray. But those are little sins. You can get by with little sins. But big sins like adultery or lying or stealing, if you were to do those and didn't get them confessed and if you died, you'd go to hell. Again, the Bible says if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you believe that committing adultery and not getting it confessed would send you to hell after you got born again, then also being angry would do the same thing. Also being jealous. Also being covetous. Some of the way that you all think about me right now because of the things I'm teaching would send you to hell. If you aren't perfect in every single way, if you aren't doing everything just right, the principle is that if you think sin is going to send you to hell, well, then which sin is it? You have to categorize them and say some sins are acceptable and other sins are unacceptable. There are no acceptable sins. If you're going to believe that you lose your salvation every time you sin, then you're going to be a mess. Because your heart is always going to condemn you. You never are matching up. The truth is that all of your sin, past, present, and future, has been taken care of. But you are saved by faith. Faith in what Jesus did. And if you ever renounce your faith, if you ever reject your faith in God, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. You can't be born again again. As a matter of fact, are you still in Hebrews? I was over in Corinthians. Look back in Hebrews chapter 10. These verses that we've been using, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. In verse 25, it says, Not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully... After that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. This is the same thing that was said in verse 18. It says, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. We've already talked about that. It repeats it in verse 25, that there is no more sacrifice for sins. Now, let me clarify something before I go on, because some people stumble and say, well, man, sin willfully. I've sinned willfully. Every sin, there are some sins, I guess, that are mistakes. You don't know that you're supposed to do something, and so you sin by omission. But most sins that people do are by commission. You know it's wrong. You know you aren't supposed to eat your fourth dessert. 
God's already dealt with you about you being the temple of God and yet you go ahead and do it. And you knew it. Some people say, oh, I can't help it. I just gained weight and I don't even try. It just happens. I just look at food and gain weight. That's not true. Everything that you ate, you willfully put it in there. Nobody has spoon-fed you since you were a little kid. You chose to do it. And many of us sin in the way that we eat. Many of us sin with the habits that we have, smoking or drinking or gossiping or watching things that we know that we shouldn't watch and you know you shouldn't do it. There is a willful attitude to just about every sin. But this, I don't believe, is talking about that kind of thing. As you go on, and we'll put it in context with the next few verses, this is talking about a deliberate hatred for God and a total turning away from God. And the rest of these verses will make that very clear. And so in verse uh, 26 again, it says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore upon it. You know, before I go on, let me just say that this leaves the impression that if you didn't obey everything Moses said, you just died. Well, that's not true. There's lots of people that disobeyed Moses and there were things in the law that if you disobeyed, you could come and offer a sacrifice and receive cleansing for it and stuff. This is a generalization and it's just talking about that people who totally rejected Moses. Specifically, there are some examples like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in the 16th chapter of the book of Numbers. They came out and challenged his authority and said, Who made you ruler over us? You speak too highly of yourself. We're also Levites. We want to run the congregation. And so God told them to come out and put uh, you know, uh, coals in a censer and bring their offering and let God choose which one. That, he, that would truly represent him. Aaron and Moses are Kor, Dathan, and Abiram. And the next day when they were supposed to be there, they didn't even show up. They snubbed Moses. And Moses sent for him, and they said, You aren't our Lord. You can't tell us what to do. We aren't even going to show up. And boy, Moses lost it. And he stood up and he said, If these people die a natural death, then you'll know that I'm not a true prophet of God. But if something brand new, supernatural happens, and if the earth opens up and swallows them alive into the pit, then you'll know that I'm God's prophet. And immediately the earth opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and 250 men that rebelled with them into the earth, and then it closed upon them. That's pretty good judgment. But did you know that Moses' sister and brother basically did the exact same thing in Numbers chapter 13? They criticized Moses because he had married a black woman, an interracial marriage. And they said, man, this disqualifies you. You can't be our leader. We're going to take over leadership. And boy, God got upset and struck Miriam with leprosy. But Miriam repented and uh, God took the leprosy away from her. And Moses retained his leadership. So not every single person who rebelled at Moses was killed. That's, that's not what this is saying. This is just saying that there were people who totally rejected. Miriam and Aaron challenged Moses, but when God showed his will, they repented and turned from this, and Miriam begged for forgiveness. So this isn't talking about the just every sin, no more than any person who sins willfully. This is talking about those who just totally reject God is what this is talking about. And in verse 29 it says, Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. Now notice the terminology. 
who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. Now, every person in here who's already born again and has sinned since you've been born again, there was a willful element to that. You knew you were wrong, and yet you went ahead and did something. But does that mean that you trod underfoot the Son of God? Was that the attitude that you had? And go look at what else it says. And have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. Every person in here, myself included, has sinned willfully and done things wrong that you knew you weren't supposed to do. But does that mean that you counted, you just trod underfoot Jesus, that you counted the blood of Jesus no different than anybody else's blood and you disesteemed him and rejected him? And the next thing it says, and have done despite unto the spirit of grace. If you look the word despite up, the word despite means hatred, intent to hurt. This is describing a person who not just knowingly sinned, but a person who just totally rejected their salvation. A person who knows what they're doing and just does it anyway for whatever reason they turned against God and they hate Him. This isn't talking about a person who sins through weakness or through humanity and therefore loses their salvation. You can't sin your salvation away because all sins have been paid for, but you can renounce your salvation. You could turn away from God and totally reject Him. And if you will look at every passage, I hadn't got time tonight to list every time in Scripture that it talks about hold fast the profession of your faith. We just read that up here in Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 24, I believe it is. Hold fast the profession of your faith. The reason it's telling you to do that is because you were saved by faith in what Jesus did. And if you ever renounce your faith in Jesus and reject Him and count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing and do despite under the Spirit of grace, just hate God and want out, God will let you out. It says in, uh, I forget exactly what chapter this is, I think it's John chapter 10, Jesus said that God, my Father that gave you to me is greater than any man and no man is able to pluck you out of my hand. And people will often use that to say, see, once you're saved, you can't ever get unsaved. But it says no man can pluck you out. It didn't say that God will force you to stay in there. You've got a free will. You can renounce your salvation. And therefore, it's important that you continue to seek God so that Satan doesn't harden your heart and bring you to a place of total rejection and renouncing of your salvation. Let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 6, and here's a passage that amplifies on this. If you'll remember, I was teaching on this. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer began to talk about Melchizedek and start making the point that Jesus was a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he was going to say that since the priesthood is changed, the law has to be changed. That's the reason we're under a new covenant. The old covenant wouldn't work. But in the midst of saying this, towards the end of the fifth chapter, he said uh, in verse 11, "...of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and have become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat." And so basically what he's saying is, I want to say these other things, but you can't bear it because you're too carnal. And he starts rebuking them. And one of the rebukes that he makes in Hebrews chapter 6 is, let's go on into maturity. Quit just hanging around the front door of salvation. And, you know, this applies to a lot of the body of Christ today because there are entire denominations that basically don't teach the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
They don't teach maturity. They don't teach how to receive from God, how to have a vital relationship. They basically are just evangelistic. They tell people how to get saved and every service they are going to preach an evangelistic message and they're just telling people how to get saved every single time. I see a few of you shaking your heads that go to a church like that. The church that I was raised in, that's the way it was. Once you got born again, you could have stayed at home because they're going to tell you how to get born again every single service. That's all they do is preach on getting born again. And he's basically saying here in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1, he says, let's leave these foundational baby things and let's go on unto maturity because you can't get a person born again again. If they were to fall away, they can never be renewed unto repentance. And in the process of making that point, he says some very important things about a person who does renounce their salvation like we were just reading about in Hebrews chapter 10. So let's look at this. In Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God and fresh and put Him to an open shame. So now this, this passage makes a number of points. One of them is, if there's anybody in here who believes that every time you sin, you lose your salvation, you're backslid until you repent and pray through and get born again again, this scripture kills that doctrine. If a person ever does fall away, it's impossible, impossible to ever have them renewed under repentance. There is no such thing as being born again, again. That's a powerful passage. And that just totally kills a doctrine that is prevalent in the body of Christ. You can't be born again, again. Now this also causes other problems. Some people think, well, man, when I first got born again, I tried it for a while. I got discouraged and I said, oh, fooey on this and turned away from it. And I went back to living in the world and it was years later before I came back to the Lord. Are you saying that I can't, you know, that I can't be back in right standing with God? No, because look at these verses right here. It puts five qualifications on a person doing this. In verse four, it says, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened... What I believe this is talking about is John chapter 6 verse 44 says that no man can come unto the Father except the Holy Spirit drawing. You have to have an enlightening. You can't just be raised in a Christian church and you were a child and you went to church and so you called yourself a Christian and then you walked away from it. You never were drawn and enlightened and never were truly born again. There's lots of people that walked away from their Christian roots and upbringings, but they were never born again in the first place. They had never had the Holy Spirit supernaturally quicken this to them and there wasn't a true born again experience. So they aren't held responsible for this because they never were truly in the fold. They were just religious Christians, not true born again Christians. So the first thing is you have to be enlightened by God. And then the second thing is taste of the heavenly gift, which I believe is talking about a true, genuine, born-again experience where you were truly saved. God had changed you. You became a new creature on the inside. The third thing that it lists, it says we're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. There is a difference in just a Christian 
who has the Holy Spirit but has not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues and the other gifts of the Holy Spirit. This eliminates a large number of the body of Christ as not even being possible to be held accountable for falling away because they never even received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. The next thing in verse 5, it says, and have tasted the good word of God. This is talking about that the word of God began to be real to you. The Holy Spirit was giving you revelation. You didn't just hear somebody else talk about it and carry a Bible under your arm, but God was speaking to you. The Word of God was alive and working. And then the next thing it lists is those that have tasted the powers of the world to come. This is talking about operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, such as the gifts of healings and miracles and a person who was actually flowing in the power of God and God was flowing through them. So you could summarize these five things basically as saying that you have to be mature before you can fall away. And if a mature Christian who reaches the criteria listed right here was to, for whatever reason, turn and renounce their faith, then they become reprobate according to what Romans chapter 1 says and it would be impossible to renew them under repentance. But most people have not ever even qualified for this because there's very few, very few really mature Christians. And there's a lot of people that have heard me talk about this that come up and say, well, man, when I was a baby Christian, I got tired and I renounced it and said, oh, I was just uh, in foolishness. There's no reality. They went back into sin and then later came back to the Lord. And they said, are you saying that I'm reprobate? No, because first of all, you weren't mature enough. But also, if I'm not going to take time to turn over there, but if you turn over and read Romans chapter 1 where it talks about people who become reprobate, it says since they didn't like to retain God in their mind, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to work all uncleanness. And he goes on and lists these things. And if you study that out, what that's talking about is, it's like that verse I used earlier, John six forty four. no man can come unto the Lord except the Holy Spirit drawing. The Holy Spirit has to draw us to God. You on your own, just human beings without the influence of the Holy Spirit would never seek God. That is not human nature. And so if a person desires the things of God, loves God, wants to be in relationship with God, or feels terrible about, oh, maybe I've offended God and I've walked away from God. You couldn't even feel that way without the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So that proves you aren't reprobate. That proves that God is still dealing with you. It proves that the Holy Spirit is still drawing you. And so you either weren't mature enough or uh, Paul said this, Paul said that he blasphemed the Holy Spirit and wasn't even worthy to be called an apostle, but he received mercy because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. Jesus said that if a person blasphemes the Holy Spirit, they never get forgiveness, not in this world nor in the next. And yet Paul said, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but I receive forgiveness because I did it ignorantly. In other words, you have to know what you're doing. You can't do this accidentally. You can't... You can't lose your salvation. It has to be a knowing, an intentional, by a mature person who rejects God and turns away. And uh, so if you still have a love for God, if you still are drawn to God, if you want to be in relationship with God, then regardless of what you've said or done, you either weren't mature enough or you were ignorant 
and God hasn't held you accountable. The fact that the Holy Spirit is still drawing you to God shows that you hadn't done this. But I do believe it's possible, and that's the reason that the Scriptures uh, warn us against this. You know, when I was a little kid, I forget how old I was. I was probably six or something like that. Something happened. I don't even remember what happened. But I got mad at my family. They didn't treat me the way that I wanted them to. And I said, I'm not going to be a womack anymore. And I ran away from home. And we lived kind of out in the country. And you know what? I wasn't even out of eyesight of my house before I got to thinking, where am I going? And where am I going to sleep? And where am I, what am I going to eat? And I got to doubting that I had done the right thing. And I was wanting to go home, but I was too proud to admit that I wanted to go home. So my brother was coming after me and I intentionally got my clothes caught in a barbed wire fence so that he could catch up with me and, and bring me back home. You know, many of us have done things like that. And you say, I don't want to be your son anymore. I'm running away from home or whatever. But you know, the government, if, if they called for help and if the cops found you, did you know they'd bring you back home and they don't hold you accountable for what you do when you're five and six years old because you don't know what you're doing. You aren't considered an adult. But now I'm 59 years old and if I wanted to renounce my family and change my name and put an injunction on my mother so that she couldn't come see me, did you know that the government would be on my side because I'm considered an adult now? And basically, this is what this is talking about. An immature baby Christian who just gets frustrated and says something out of ignorance or immaturity, God doesn't hold you accountable. But if you fulfill these requirements and get born again, baptized in the Holy Ghost, the Word of God is working and you are flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit and you are operating as a mature Christian, there is the possibility that you could renounce the Lord and reject your salvation. And if that ever happens... There is no repentance. There is no second atonement. You can't be born again again. So anyway, that ought to answer some questions. You know, I'd really rather not even minister on this stuff because if you just took the Word of God and studied it and let the Holy Ghost teach you, you wouldn't even misinterpret this. The reason that this is a problem is because religion has taken these scriptures and twisted them and they have taught that every time you sin, you lose your salvation and you gotta, you're backslid and you've got to be born again again. You know, if that doctrine wasn't prevalent, I wouldn't even have to say what I'm saying. It'd be obvious what these scriptures are talking about. But we've all been taught so many weird doctrines that again, the scripture says in Mark chapter 7 verse 13 that the traditions and doctrines of man make the word of God of none effect. And so rather than just teaching that you're forgiven of all sins and let it go, I think it's good to take these scriptures and try and interpret them in the light of what the word is really saying and counter these things so that it won't undo the points that I've been trying to make here. But God has already forgiven you of all sins. I can say it this way. You are eternally secure as long as you want to be secure. As long as you desire to be saved. As long as you desire to have relationship with God. You can have relationship with God. You can't lose it through mistakes, through failure, through weakness. You have to intentionally, knowingly... Turn away from it. And when that happens, Romans 1 says you become reprobate. He takes all knowledge away. And a reprobate person knows they're going to hell and is glad of it. They hate God. There is no influence of the Holy Spirit in their life. They are God haters and they are thrilled that they're going to hell because they hate God so much. 
Any person who still loves God and would be hurt thinking that, man, I've turned away from God, I've lost this great gift, well, then you hadn't renounced the Lord. You aren't reprobate. Man, that's good news. But there are scriptures in here that warn us against renouncing, and we have to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering because He is faithful that promised Look over in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I think it's 1 Timothy. It's either 1st or 2nd. I'll find it. Must be 2nd Timothy chapter 2. In verse 11 it says, It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with Him, we shall live with Him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we believe not, yet He abideth faithful, He cannot deny Himself. This is talking about the same thing. If you just get to a place to where your faith falters and you fail in some area, again, even if it's knowingly you did something and you knew you shouldn't do it, but you did it, but you haven't renounced Him, you haven't denied Him, well, then you know what? He's made a promise to you that He'll never leave you nor forsake you, and He will hold faithful to you even if you aren't faithful to Him. But... He doesn't, he's not going to force anybody. If you were to out and out deny the Lord, turn against Him, renounce Him, and according to those verses we read in Hebrews chapter 10, do despite under the Spirit of grace, trodden underfoot the Son of God, count the blood of the covenant no better than anybody else's blood. And if you did that, fulfilling the requirements of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, then you would be reprobate and it would be impossible to renew you unto a repentance again seeing that you crucified yourselves the Son of God afresh. So anyway, that's, that's an answer to things. I don't believe you can send your salvation away. If you could, then which sin is it? You have to put acceptable sins and unacceptable sins. That's inconsistent with Scripture. You, you can't do that. And if you did lose your salvation, you can't come back into relationship with God. So anyway, that's answering this question. But here's the positive application of this. This shows you how that the sacrifice of Jesus is once for all. There is no such thing as getting your sins back under the blood. Many of us have heard this terminology that every time you sin, you've got to get that sin under the blood. You've got to confess that and get that back under the blood. All of the things that I've been teaching, all of these verses are basically killing that doctrine. And I think that that is one of the worst doctrines in the body of Christ because if you believe that every time you sin, every time you come short, it's like you get put back to square one. You aren't saved. You're out of relationship with God. And so now you've got to repent and get born again again. Then you're just constantly going back to square one and starting over all of the time. You're never going to grow. You're never going to reach any place. Man, we sin all of the time. Sin isn't only the things you're doing that is a direct transgression of the law, but it says to him that knows to do good and does it not. To him it is sin. You know, every one of us know that we should be studying the Word more. We should be praying more. We should love other people more. You should love your wife more. Love your husband more. You should be kind to people Everyone of you have probably thought about your neighbors, that you know what, I ought to go over there and meet the neighbors. And you know that you should be doing things that you haven't done. And to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. 
If you use the Bible definition of sin, then every one of us is falling short continually. And if you think that every time you sin, you lose your relationship with God and get put back to square one, you're never going to go anywhere except to square one. You're going to live around it. That's where a lot of Christians are. It just, it stunts growth. You cannot grow and mature when you are believing that God's love for you is based on your performance and you got to just constantly go to Him repenting over everything. So that's super important that you understand that. Now that brings up another question. Let's turn over to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. I'm sure that a lot of you have been wondering about this one. 1 John chapter 1. In verse 9 it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now I'm going to tell you what I believe that that means here in just a second. But first of all, let me make some points. This is the only passage in the New Testament that tells you to confess your sins for the purpose of receiving forgiveness from God. Now, I had somebody else mention to me in James chapter 5, it says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. But that's talking about reconciling differences between people. There's a number of scriptures that talks about going to your brother and humbling yourself and stuff. I'm putting that in a different class. This is the only scripture in the New Testament that tells you to confess your sin. Now, there's another religious tradition. People will say, if you want to be saved, come to the Lord and confess your sins. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't tell you to confess your sins except in this one verse right here. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But that's not the way that the apostles told people how to receive salvation. Like, for instance, in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts is where Paul and Silas got thrown into prison. And at midnight, they started singing and praising God and worshiping God with their feet and the hands in their stocks. And the Lord got to patting His foot with them and an earthquake came and it opened all the prison doors and their, their bonds fell off. And the jailer was going to kill himself, but Paul just cried out with a loud voice and says, Don't do yourself any harm. So the jailer got a light and came in and when he found all of the prisoners still there... He fell down at their feet and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Confess your faults, confess your sins, and ask God to forgive you and you shall be saved. No, that's not what he said. That's what most people say today. But he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved and your house. He didn't tell him to confess your sins. If you had to confess your sins to get saved, what would happen if you forgot one? <laughs> Some of you, the life that you've lived, you wouldn't have enough time left to confess every sin. <laughs> and yet this is what the church teaches is you've got to confess your sins. You don't have to confess your sins. Jesus died for your sins 2,000 years ago before you ever lived and committed any sin. Jesus forgave sin. It's over. You don't have to confess your sins and ask forgiveness implying that it's still to be settled. God, will you forgive me? No, He's already 
forgiven the sins of the whole world. Again, 1 John 2, 2, I've used this verse already. It says He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's already made an atoning sacrifice for every person's sins. Sins have been paid for. You don't have to ask them to be paid for. What do you need to do? Believe that Jesus has paid for your sins and receive the salvation that He's provided. Salvation is not a confession of your sins, but a confession of your faith in the Lord who paid for your sins and a submission unto Him as Lord. So that's what the Scripture teaches. Again, this classic Scripture that I use, that a lot of people use to lead people to the Lord, is Romans chapter 10. And in the previous verses, it's quoting from Moses. And Moses says, what do you have to do to atone for your sins? Do you have to go into heaven? Do you have to ascend up into heaven? Do you have to go down to hell and pay for your own sins and get punished? No, but the word of faith, the word is nigh you even in your heart and in your mouth. And then Paul added to it, that is the word of faith which we preach. And then verse 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It didn't say that you have to confess your sins. It says you have to confess that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead and you shall be saved. So the way that many people are instructing people to receive salvation is wrong. They're saying that you've got to repent and ask God to forgive you of your sins. It's not true. Now repentance is a, is a part of salvation. I hadn't got time to teach on all of this. You know, you could take what I'm saying here and get me in trouble. But I'm just saying that you don't confess your sins. You confess your faith in Jesus is what Paul told the Philippian jailer. It's what Paul said in Romans chapter 10 verse 9. And so this scripture in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 is the only scripture that I'm aware of in the New Testament where it tells you to confess your Sin, and if you do, then God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if that's true, which that's in my study, unless I've missed something, that's true and accurate. Well, here's another point. Jesus even quoted this. He says, in the mouth of two or in the mouth of three witnesses, let everything be established. It is wrong Bible interpretation to take one scripture out of the Bible and make a huge doctrine out of it. And yet I can guarantee you that this verse right here is probably one of the best known scriptures in the Bible and it's the only instance in the New Testament where it tells you to confess your sins and then God's faithful and just to forgive you. So that right there makes it suspect, the interpretation of it, the way that it is. If your forgiveness is conditional upon you confessing everything again, that's impractical. It's impossible for you to keep every sin confessed. Again, I use this. I know that I'm, vo I'm countering a lot of tradition. And there are some of you that are thinking some rotten thoughts about me. You have said some nasty things in your mind about me. And you know what? I'm your brother and I'm probably going to have my mansion next to yours in heaven. <laughs> and you know what? Many of you don't even recognize that that's wrong. But you're thinking some things about me that you shouldn't be thinking about me. You know what? That's sin. That we, we sin in so many ways that we aren't even aware of. This is impractical to think that you have to keep every single sin confessed. 
You know, here's what I believe that this verse is simply talking about. Again, when you get born again, you receive eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, 12, which is forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7. You receive eternal, redemp- eternal inheritance. Hebrews 9, 15. You are vacuum-packed, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13. So that you cannot sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. You cannot sin in your spirit. It's sinless. It's perfected. It's sealed. So if those things be true, why do you need to confess your sin? Here's the reason I believe, and here's what this is talking about, is that even though your spirit is sealed and God is a spirit, John 4, 24 says God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So therefore, I, even though I may sin out here in my physical body, my spirit isn't contaminated by that. I don't lose my salvation. I am not out of fellowship with God. God is looking at me and fellowshipping with me through the Spirit. So that's all done and it's perfected forever. But Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Every time you yield yourself to sin, you just throw open a door to the devil to come into your life to steal, kill, and to destroy. John 10 says that that's the only thing that the thief comes for is to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came to give us life and to give it to us more abundantly. Every time you go live in sin, you give Satan an inroad into your physical body into your mind, into your emotions. He doesn't penetrate the seal. It doesn't affect your spirit. You're still sanctified and perfected forever. And God looks at you in the spirit. And so therefore you can still have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. But you are letting Satan into your life and he's got a legal right to be there because you cooperated with him. How do you deal with that? How do you get rid of that? I believe that that's what 1 John 1, 9 is talking about. You have just given Satan a free shot at you. How do you repent? How do you get rid of it? You just confess that that's sin. The word confess here in 1 John 1, 9 means to say the same thing. In other words, you were saying, God, I know that you told me to walk in love with people, but I'm angry at this person and I don't care what your word says. I'm in bitterness I am not going to forgive them. And so you go your way thinking your way is better than what God says. If you do that, Satan is going to eat your lunch and pop the bag. You don't want that. You can tell that a few people have heard me say this before. And so if you give Satan that kind of inroad into your life, what do you do? Are you just trapped? Because after all, you yielded to him and to whom you yield yourself, his servant you are, to whom you obey. No, if you will confess, say the same thing and say, whoops, God, you know what? Your way was right. My way was wrong. I repent. You turn away from that and you confess it that, God, that was sin. Well, then this forgiveness... And this uh, sanctification and purity that's been in your spirit all along, now you release that sanctifying holy power that was in your spirit to come out and sanctify you in the flesh. I believe that 1 John 1, 9 is talking about how to cleanse and sanctify your flesh, not your spirit. Your spirit is born again by one offering. You retain your relationship with God. But you need to repent and confess things to get Satan off your case. 
Here's an example of this. I was in Lima, Ohio, and this has been 25 years ago or something, and I was holding a meeting, and there was a woman that came up, and she had arthritis, and she was on a walker, and she was probably, I don't know, five or six rows back, and I bet you it took her 20 minutes, 30 minutes to walk to the front. This woman was so bad with arthritis, she could barely stand. And I mean, she would just barely scoot like this, and she was just barely moving. So she came forward, I ministered to her just briefly and prayed for her and I grabbed her walker away from her and I said, now walk. And I grabbed her hands and she didn't want to walk. She hurt and so she was just barely moving. And so I grabbed her hands and pulled her to where she was leaning like this and then I started to let go. And she had to start moving. And boy, she started moving, trying to keep from falling. And all of a sudden, the pain was gone. This woman grabbed her walker and walked back and forth across the front of the stage. And she was totally healed. And everybody was just praising God. The next night, she came back on the walker, just as bad as she was the night before. And she says, before I got out to my car, all that pain was back. And I've been worse today than normal. She says, what happened? And so I told her, I said, there has to be like a root of that arthritis, something that is causing the arthritis that we didn't get rid of. We rebuked arthritis and got rid of the pain, but the root is there, and so the thing just cropped back up. And I said, let's pray and find out what the root of this problem is. And I mean, within seconds, the Lord spoke through me and said, you've got bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody, and that's what's causing your arthritis. Now, this isn't so in every single case, so don't make a law out of this and come under bondage. But I believe that, you know, Jesus sometimes casts demons out of people to effect cure, and sometimes physical things aren't physical at all. They're spiritual. So anyway, I told her, I said, you've got unforgiveness in your heart. And this woman just started bawling, and she says, it's absolutely true. And you've got to remember, this was 25 years ago, and this woman was probably 60 then, And 40 years before that, so that would have been 65 years ago, she was engaged to a guy and he wanted to have sex with her before they got married and she said no. And he says, look, we're going to go ahead and get married. It's okay. It's all right. And so anyway, he convinced her she had sex with him and then he took off. She got pregnant and had a child out of wedlock 60-something years ago, which was uh, much, much more... um, I don't know, offensive than it is today. And she lost her family. They deserted her. She lost her friends. She got kicked out of church. And anyway, she suffered so much from this that she had spent 40 years hating this man every day of her life. And she had unforgiveness and bitterness in her heart. And as soon as I said that about you've got unforgiveness, she started crying. She told me this story and she says, I know exactly who it's towards. And I said, you know what? There's an anointing of God here right now to enable you to forgive this man and to let him go. And I said, if you don't, you won't get healed. Now, this needs a little explanation because some people say, well, see, God wouldn't heal her because there's sin in her life. No, that's not going to stop God, but it stops her from receiving. It's not God who's got his arms folded, I won't heal you. No, God had already healed her. He healed her the night before and the pain was totally gone and she put the walker over her head. God's power flowed, but she had this door open to the devil that was the root of that uh, disease, and that, and so it came in. Satan is going to destroy you if you give him an opportunity. So she needed to repent of her unforgiveness, not because God wouldn't love her, but because she was giving Satan a direct inroad into her life. And so 
I prayed with her and she just, I mean, from her heart, she forgave this guy. God, I forgive him. And she started blessing him. Lord, I pray that you'd bless him. I pray that his life would prosper. And instead of hatred, she started blessing him. And I said, now I can pray with you in that arthritis and leave. She says, no need. And she grabbed her walker and put it over her head. And she walked down the aisle. And we had three or four more nights of that uh, meeting. And she came every night and was just fine during the rest of that meeting. Now see, that's an example, I believe, of what 1 John 1, 9 is talking about. This woman, God loved her and His power was flowing towards her, but Satan had free access to her because she was yielding unto him. Again, Romans 6, 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you, through sin are opening up a door to the devil. God still loves you because God is a spirit and God is looking at you in the spirit and your spirit has been sealed and it's still holy and pure and God can fellowship with you even though you are living in sin. I know that that makes some people's skin crawl, but it's true because all of us are in varying degrees of sin. None of us are doing everything exactly right. And again, if you use God's perspective, if you keep the whole law and yet offending one point, you become guilty of all. If you think that God won't fellowship, can't have a relationship with any person who's got sin in their life, then God wouldn't have fellowship with anybody. Because we all sin in some way. Matter of fact, if you took 1 John chapter 1... And put it in its context. Let's read the verse in front of this. 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, the verse after that, it says, If we say that we have not sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So anybody in here is saying, oh, well, I don't sin. I'm living a holy life. You deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Brothers and sisters, we all sin. We all do things wrong. We all make mistakes. There's not any person in here that has the ability to live totally without sin. You know, there's examples of Paul and and, uh, Barnabas having contention over John Mark. And the contention was so strong. Here are two of the leading apostles in the body of Christ. They had strife in their life and had to split and go different directions. And God still used them. There's nobody, nobody... Nobody who does everything right. And if you are putting me or anybody else on a pedestal and thinking, oh man, they got it together and they're doing everything right, you're just setting me up for a fall. You're going to eventually going to see my warts, my sin, my failure, and then you'll get bitter and stuff like that. You just need to come to grips with this. If you think that you have never sinned, you deceive yourself. And the truth isn't in you. If you say that you have not sinned, you make him a liar and the truth isn't in you. We all sin and come short. And when you do it, how do you deal with that? Man, you confess it. Not for the purpose of, oh God, how could you love me? Oh God, I know you're angry. God, you won't answer my prayer. God, you can't fellowship with me. God, I lost my salvation. All of those are wrong things. The right way is to say, Father, thank you that in my spirit I am sanctified and perfected forever. I'm sealed and thank you that this did not change your attitude towards me. Thank you that I am still the righteousness of God. Thank you that I still at my worst am better than the devil. 
Amen. I'm still righteous. I'm still holy. Thank you that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. Thank you that I can still have your power flow in my life. But I have just opened up a door to the devil. And Father, I repent of it. I turn from it. You were right. I was wrong. I am closing that door and opening my life back up to you. And when you do, this righteousness and holiness that's in you come flooding out into the flesh. And now Satan no longer has any right to dominate you. And it'll get rid of that sickness and get rid of your poverty and get rid of your depression and get rid of the bitterness and the hurt that you had by entertaining Satan and following his ways. Amen? So I believe that that's what 1 John 1, 9 is talking about. Again, it cannot be talking about that you have to keep every sin confessed to retain your salvation or your relationship with God because that's impossible. It just is impractical. You'd spend all of your time repenting. But you know what? You can, when you know that you've opened up a door to the devil, you can repent. You can humble yourself. And you can go to the person that you've offended and try and make it right. And you can say, God, you were right and I'm wrong. And every time you do that, it just slams the door on the devil. He no longer has any right because you are not yielded to him. You've renounced it by humbling yourself and repenting and turning from that sin. If you are participating in sin... You know, some people think that because I preach on grace, that therefore it doesn't matter what people do. They can just go live in sin. Man, that's not it at all. That is not even close. Man, I live a very holy life, but I live it not in order to get God pleased with me. God is pleased with me through what Jesus did. But I live holy because I don't want to give Satan a free shot at me. I don't want him to come in and hinder my life. And when I do sin, I'm quick to repent of it and to humble myself. And you know what? The people that are in leadership in our ministry and in our Bible college and stuff like this. If they get into sin, it depends on what it is. If it's just, you know, they made a mistake, if their tempers flared and they didn't treat somebody the way that they should, well, we go talk to them and we try and reconcile. And all of us are in varying stages of growth. But if somebody's in leadership in our ministry, we just had a guy in not our U.S. office, but one of my other foreign offices that just was going to leave his wife and marry one of the Bible college students. And he did it blatantly, openly. And you know what, boy, I didn't deal with it, but the director of that Bible college called this guy in and said, this is unacceptable behavior. Man, you are supposed to be setting a standard. And we told the guy, God loves you. We didn't say, you're going to hell. Repent or else. Turn or burn. But we did say that you're a leader and this is not the example that we want to set. And this guy voluntarily resigned and got out of the ministry. But you know what, we don't allow people like that to be in leadership. You aren't qualified to lead. It's not because God doesn't love him. God loves him exactly the same as he did before. But you know what? When we treated him that way, he realized what a severe mistake that was and he's decided to stick with his wife and work the thing out. And it was good that we responded the way that we did. I'm very strict. I believe that there are consequences to your actions. But there is a difference between consequences and God rejecting you. The moment you start believing that God is orchestrating the consequences, that God is causing your demise because you've done something wrong, 
then you've put yourself back under the Old Testament law. You are reaping what you deserve instead of approaching God through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. And the moment you do that, you are out of the new covenant and back into the old covenant. And boy, Satan is just going to destroy you. But just because I believe that, you know, I could go commit adultery and God would love me the same. I really believe that. And I know some of you just cringe thinking, no. Well, there's a number of reasons I don't do that. First of all, Romans chapter 6. Let me just, I still got a few minutes or I'm going to take them anyway. Let me just use this. Let me use this real quickly in Romans chapter 6. The first five books of Romans are really making this point that you are justified by faith and not by your own works. And it's preaching grace, the exact same thing that we've been teaching from the book of Romans. And then Romans chapter 6 verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's answer is in verse 2, God forbid... And in the Greek language, that is as strong a a negative, a rejection as you can get without using profanity. Matter of fact, there's one translation that I don't talk that way, but it says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Blankety blank knows the way that this translation says it. And that's basically the point that Paul's getting across. But before I go into his answer here, let me say this. That if you've never heard the gospel preached the way that I've been talking about this week so that it brings up this question, can can we just live in sin because you've been forgiven of all sin? You're sanctified and perfected forever. Does that mean that I can just go live in sin? If that question never comes to you, then you didn't hear the gospel that Paul preached. Because Paul said that five times here in the book of Romans, twice in this sixth chapter, also in the book of Galatians. If that question never comes up, if grace hasn't been preached to such an extent that it makes you wonder, can I just live in sin because God's forgiven me of all sin? Well, then you hadn't heard the true gospel. And you know what? Most of you have never had that question come to you by listening to a preacher. Most preachers are so dead set of preaching on sin and God's going to get you and judge you that that never comes up because that's not the true gospel. But if you preach grace the way that Paul preaches it, this will be a logical conclusion. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Then he gives two reasons here in the sixth chapter of Romans. The first one is, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And I could preach on this for a couple hours. I'm not going to do that. Let me just real quickly say that it's in the spirit. Your born again spirit has no desire for sin. Zero. It is sanctified, perfected forever. And it cannot sin. 1 John chapter 3 verse 9. Your born again spirit can not sin. It has no propensity for sin. No desire for sin. So the first reason that you don't go live in sin is because if you're truly born again, you don't want to live in sin. It says over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall see Him, we shall be like Him. And then verse 3, it says, Every man that has this hope in him, purifies himself even as he is pure. If you are truly born again, if you are, have this 
this hope on the inside of you, as verse 2 is talking about, then you seek to purify yourself. You may be doing a poor job of it, because actually legalism increases your lust for sin. That's another teaching. But it's true. You tell a person, thou shalt not, and something on the inside of them says, bless God, I shall. (laughs) When people preach against sin, you watch it. The people who are screaming against sin and don't do this, there will be a rash of those exact sins they preach against. That's right. That's right. And that is a... I could verify that by Scripture, but that's another teaching. So, you may be doing a poor job of living holy because maybe you haven't heard the truth and you haven't been set free from this. But if you are truly born again, number one, you want to live for God. So preaching on the grace of God doesn't free you to sin. It frees you from sin and allows you to start living holy and living free from sin. Then the second reason that you don't live in sin is verse 16. And I've already used that a couple of times tonight. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. The second reason you don't live in sin is because it is a direct inroad of Satan into your life. So, you don't live in sin because you don't want to live in sin. First of all, if you're truly born again, you want to live for God. You would rather live holy than live unholy. A person who would take what I'm saying and say, Oh, I love this. Man, I can go live in sin. You have just given me a license for sin. I'd say, Well, you're doing pretty good without a license. But any person who would take what I'm saying as a license to sin, you ought to get born again. Because your heart is wrong. You're just religious. You were never born again. A person who's truly born again wants to live for God. And the second reason, you give Satan an inroad into your life and you are not going to succeed just letting Satan take free shots at you. So those are two main reasons. I could actually add a third reason to this and I believe that that is that how are you going to set another person free if you aren't free yourself? How are you ever going to witness to somebody else if you are in bondage and sick and broke and bitter and hurt? And so your witness is totally blown if you are living in sin. So those are three really good reasons not to live in sin. Because first of all, your nature's been changed. You don't want to live in sin. It's a direct inroad of Satan. And your witness is not going to be any good if you're living in sin. And so when it comes to leadership, I will not put people in leadership who don't have they're the manifested presence of God in their life enough that they are living a life of integrity. And some people think, well, that sounds contrary to your grace. No, it's not. God loves them and I love them. I've actually fired people before. One guy who was my very best friend, I fired him because he was a, he was a sorry worker. He was causing problems. And I went in and fired him and he got all up. I thought we were friends and I said, I am. I still like you. I said, you're a good friend. But you know what? I fired him. And I still loved him. But he didn't need to be leading. He was was criticizing me and saying things. And this has been 20-something years ago in our ministry. But um, you know what? I still loved him. And some people would think, well, no, you, you didn't treat him by grace. No, I still love the guy. I hadn't got anything against him. I haven't said anything against him. But you know what? I'm not going to promote the error that he was living in. I'm not going to reward that. When it comes time to promote people in our ministry, I love all of our employees. we got 200 employees. I love all of our employees. I'm not mad at those people. 
But you know what? When it comes time to promote them, I'm not going to take the one that's sloppy and that doesn't show up and doesn't do a good job and make him the boss. That caused problems. I'm going to take the one who's performing better than the other and promote them. And somebody says, so you don't deal with people by grace. Sure I do. I love everybody by grace. I love them. But you know what? I reward people who do a good job. There are rewards in the body of Christ. God loves every one of us. We have access into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way. But you know what? The people who are doing what's right will have God bless and prosper you and release His power in your life in a way that other people won't. Praise God. So, you know, everything in the Bible has an apparent contradiction to it. The Bible says you're saved by faith without works in Romans chapter 3. And then over in James chapter 2, you see that a man is saved by works and not by faith only. They look contradictory. Martin Luther got such a revelation on grace that he couldn't harmonize James chapter 2. And so he actually tried to get James taken out of the Bible. He didn't think it was inspired. But you know, they actually harmonize each other. They're both true. It's like if you were going to walk on a tightrope across here, you would have to anchor it into that wall and then pull in the opposite direction and have this tension to be able to make that thing strong enough that you could walk across it. Every truth of God has to be have a tension between apparent opposite, opposite truths to be truly balanced in the true revelation of the Word of God. God loves you by grace. And all of that's true in the spirit realm. But that doesn't mean that you just go out and live a sloppy life in the physical. No, you still need to live holy. And as a matter of fact, my standard of holiness is probably higher than most but I'm not living holy in order to have God love me. I'm living holy to keep the devil out of my life as a witness to other people and things like that. I emphasize holiness, but not to be accepted with God. I'm accepted with God by faith in Jesus and in His blood and in His atonement. But I'm also aware that Satan takes advantage of my actions, and so I live holy. Hopefully the things I've shared tonight will be a balance to all the stuff that I've taught, and it will help you to apply it and uh, keep a few scriptures from tripping you up and rejecting this. But man, the main things that I've shared is that we have a new and living way to enter unto God. You cannot mix the old covenant and the new covenant. We have to take responsibility for entering in. God has already provided everything. The door is open, but He's not going to come out and get you and drag you in. You have to enter into the presence of God all of our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. You are sanctified and perfected forever. And if you understand those things, it will so radically change your relationship with God that you will start having a relationship. You know, I had a couple of people come up to me, two people tonight, who told me that last year they were just overwhelmed to shake hands with me. They had to sit on the front row. This year... They're sitting at the back and they said, you know what? My relationship isn't with you, it's with God. And they're, they're getting to where they don't appreciate me as much. And I said, you know, that's good. If you receive this, why stop at the messenger? Go straight to the Lord Himself and establish relationship. 
And you can get into such an intimate relationship with God that then you'll start being the messenger to share with other people and setting other people free. But only a free person can set another person free. If you'll receive this, this will totally change your relationship with God. It'll make it so that, man, you can go directly into the Holy of Holies and God will start showing you things and doing things. I've got our guy that's in Uganda that's teaching all of these things. He was over there telling me, yeah, you say this and you do this, and man, you don't understand how important spirit, soul, and body is. And I'm the guy that taught him all of that. <laughs> but you know what? It didn't offend me. I thought, man, this is great. This guy's got the revelation. He's over here telling me that I need to get stronger in it. And I thought, you know what? That's just great. He's gone past me and he's in the presence of God himself and getting revelation directly from God. Isn't that good? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Well, Father, we thank you for the Word of God and thank you for these truths. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will take the things that have been said during this conference and that, Father, it'll help us to enter directly into your throne room that we will begin to start having relationship with you directly, that our conscience will be purged from dead works so that we should have no more conscience of sin. Father, I'm believing that these people will just begin to excel and abound in their relationship. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Praise God. You know, the Lord is just speaking to me that there are many of you that have seen yourself as just a member of the congregation that hung around in the outer court. You didn't enter into the holy place or into the holy of holies. It wasn't even a goal. You just were dependent upon some preacher, some priest, some holy person telling you what to do, praying for you, getting everything off of them. And you've never had the vision of having that relationship. And this week, weekend, God has opened up the door and revealed to you that you can enter right in to the Holy of Holies. You don't have to have anybody else stand between you and God. That's a major revelation. I believe some of you are going to enter into a relationship with God that you've never had. I feel right now like the Lord's just calling some of you to change your whole approach your whole desire, that you can know God for yourself. You can know Him personally. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I believe that the Holy Spirit is moving in and out of these rows and touching people's hearts and drawing people into that intimacy so that, Father, we'll know you personally, that we won't have to have somebody else tell us about God, but we'll all know you from the least to the greatest. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you for touching people's hearts. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, we believe that the things that you've spoken to us this weekend, according to John 14, 26, we believe that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all of that truth, teach us all of these things, and bring everything that you have spoken here this weekend back to our remembrance. Father, we believe that this word is going to burn on the inside of us until it burns out the wrong teachings. And that, Father, we will take full advantage of what Jesus has provided. 
Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Father, for going to such great expense. Thank you for totally taking care of all of these problems. And Father, we just repent of living such a life that is far short. We want to have the full benefit of what Jesus produced. We receive with meekness the engrafted word that is able to save our souls. And we thank you for that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You know, if you've never been born again, you must be born again.